Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is the third episode of the Velvet Podcast. My name is Connie. I am your host. I'm also a master's graduate. I am studying clinical psychology, and I'm the founder, president, and CEO of Velvet. That's www.velvetapp.com, www.vlvtapp.com. Don't forget to come sign up for our application. The waitlist is getting quite full. We are waiting to see your name on it. You can visit the official website that I just mentioned, sign up, subscribe to our waitlist. You'll receive weekly mailers and you'll also be put on the waitlist to beta test our app before it drops this fall. So we're back with chapter three of my master's thesis, investigating the crisis of masculinity from a cultural perspective, but also from a psychological and psychoanalytic perspective. Now in this third chapter, I'm going to look at the historical and political sociocultural and sexual context from the 90s to now that has kind of created and fostered this crisis of masculinity, how it's impacted all of us, and the different sort of icons, athletes, celebrity personalities that have embodied this crisis and that have really embodied the anxiety that we are experiencing around what it means to be a man today. So without further ado, this is the third chapter in my thesis. It's called The 90s to Now. Here we go. When Americans looked at O.J. Simpson, they didn't see a man on trial. They saw a symbol, a representation, a signifier. They saw ideas. They still do. And for many reasons, many men saw and continue to see themselves. History plays a key role in the story of O.J. Simpson and in the crisis of masculinity, for the concepts, events, and phenomena that circulated continue to do so today. In Chris Rock's cinematic directorial debut, Top 5, the lead, who's played by Rock himself, attempts to explain to his romantic interest that cultural phenomena don't just happen randomly. He illustrates this by citing the 1968 release of Planet of the Apes as a cultural trigger for the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. the very next day. While this theory is of course false, Rock's argument calls attention to the subtle influential forces that we imagine circulate within culture, propagated largely by its media mechanisms. More than anything though, Rock's theory reminds us of how our understanding of things happens relationally. Historical context is essential. And so to understand the cultural phenomena that are entwined with O.J. Simpson and the contemporary crisis of masculinity, a historical survey is needed. It is inarguable that to understand O.J. Simpson, one must take into consideration his football stardom, its impact on his celebrity and how he is and continues to be received by the public. However, for the present purposes, I am more interested in the fall of Simpson and of masculinity itself, for it is this fall that is still being negotiated. My cultural and historical analysis will begin in 1990, continuing to 2018, allowing me an overview of the temporal period in which men, their practices, and their place in society really began to be scrutinized by Western culture. This chapter, more than anything, is about connecting the dots and identifying the patterns in culture, indicating a crisis of masculinity, setting the scene for the OJ trial and response to it from the 90s to now. What must first be examined is the fact that iconic representational bodies have always been a mode of understanding and a vehicle for narratives about humanity and life. 
Reading bodies is a tool that is so deeply ingrained within us by way of culture that it persists despite our best efforts to evolve and progress. Men's bodies, and consequently archetypal paradigms or character templates, if you will, are read and understood in a very specific way. In their ideal incarnations, their frames are powerful and rigid, utilitarian, forceful, potentially dangerous or aggressive, strong and distinct. This speaks to how they are understood conceptually by us all, as useful, productive acting agents who do, exert, create, and destroy. Above all, according to the conventional forms of masculinity, a man is supposed to be in control. It is agency that makes the man. To perform properly, he must have dominion over himself, his body, and furthermore, over others, if he embodies this cultural concept called masculinity successfully enough. The 90s were a period in history where, especially in America, some prominent men were tried for their performances of masculinity. On February 14, 1994, Time Magazine's cover screamed in big bold lettering, Are men really that bad? The cover article's opening sentences, woven together by the provocative Lance Morrow, read as follows. After God cast Lucifer and his followers into darkness, all the fallen angels came straggling together on the plains of hell to recriminate, to console themselves, and to discuss their new identities as devils. It may be time for men to hold a convention for the same purpose. If that isn't a broad-sweeping condemnation of absolute biblical proportion, I don't know what is. Morrow's prose aside, the mere placement of men and bad together in big block lettering broadcasted on every time cover visible at newsstands, grocery stores, gas stations, sidewalk kiosks in the entire Western Hemisphere suggests volumes to anyone who laid eyes on the headline that men are indeed bad, and that these two power words, both conceptually loaded, are in urgent need of association. In 1999, Susan Faludi published a work called Stift, The Betrayal of the American Man. Faludi's dedication to the modern American male was a survey of the 90s and the ways in which this era in particular found men in crisis mode. Towards the turn of the century, Faludi explains, American manhood was under siege, in the midst of a domestic apocalypse otherwise known as the masculinity crisis. The crisis of manliness was broadcast on the cover page of the Weekly Standard, with publications upon publications investigating domestic violence in particular, throwing it into the forefront of the zeitgeist as the emblematic masculine sin of our age. The discourse was thick in the air of men as monsters in need of policing, handling, debate, and punishment. For Faludi, male violence was the quintessential expression of masculinity run amok, out of control and trying to control everything in its path. This dichotomy, as we have seen in the literature preceding this chapter, is crucial to the production of anxiety around manliness and its culturally negotiated meaning. In man's attempt to gain control of his circumstances by way of violence, there is a loss of control, a letting loose of oneself, leading to blatant disregard for society's rules and regulations. Man's out-of-control body both regains dominance and threatens the societal order. This contradiction was the crux of the anxiety generated, and is still the underlying reason for the generation of anxiety around men and their meaning today. 
O.J. Simpson is a wonderful case study for the kind of work Faludi was doing, for he became an icon of the crisis of masculinity amid other crises coming to a head in 1990s America. Simpson was described to Faludi in her research as the perfect case study of an American man who thinks he's entitled to just control everything and everybody. His and Nicole's history of domestic violence had been well documented by the police throughout the early 90s prior to that murderous night. And so in an effort to better understand both Simpson and male aggression, Faludi herself attended domestic violence groups, wherein men would honestly share about their incidents of aggressive behavior while on the road to recovery. Faludi described one incident of a man in the group opening up. He said, Looking back at that night, when I beat her with an open hand, I didn't black out. I was feeling good. I was in power. I was strong. I was in control. I felt like a man. That moment of control had been the only one in his recent life. The men Faludi met at the domestic violence group had lost their compass in the world. They lost or were losing jobs, homes, cars, families, and so their desperate attempts to regain control by way of exerting their physicality in the tangible world was, for them, the conceptual answer to reinstating or hanging on to their manhood. As far as O.J. Simpson goes, the slow descent of his career and his deteriorating relationship with Nicole were probably contributing elements leading to that fateful 1994 night in Brentwood. What's significant is that the cultural understanding goes as follows. The man controlling his environment is today the prevailing American image of masculinity. And this in turn gets ingested, processed by men and women thinking about men on an individual and psychic level. Manliness in the 90s and for decades prior was defined by this simple notion and in many ways it still is. The men had probably felt in control when they beat their wives because their everyday experience was of feeling controlled. Men seem to feel as though society is gaining an upper hand on them, imposing a particular structure upon them and submitting them as men to said structure. Faludi meditates upon masculine archetypes delving into America's history of masculinity which suggests a more complicated dynamic, one in which from the nation's earliest frontier days, Man in the community was valued as much as the loner in control, homely society, as much as heroic detachment. Ironically, O.J. embodied both polar archetypes described by Faludi, the images of him standing with his kids at Nicole's funeral, or his perception as a great friend and family man, juxtaposed with snapshots of him as a lone star on the football field, or fleeing the cops cowboy style in that white bronco, are also opposite from one another. Simpson has, over time, embodied so many variant archetypal masculinities, and this is part of why he perplexes Western culture. He is wrought with paradoxes, generating anxiety. His many representations greatly contribute to the crisis surrounding what men are and who men should be. Man as unstoppable force is often thought of with respect to the human male's physicality and its violent potential. Human beings sit atop the hierarchical pyramid with respect to all living things, but men in particular occupy the uppermost peak insofar as their capacity to dominate in the physical realm. One age-old phenomenon that reflects as much is rape. Date rape culture, and the publicized, much-debated condemnation of it, was on the rise circa 1990, and this is a phenomenon that has persisted into present day. 
Today, the concept is widely accepted and understood. Simply ignoring a woman's no means rape, regardless of the circumstances or even of how many times she may have said yes on the way to your apartment. Cultural critic and provocateur Camille Paglia would certainly disagree with the politically correct vigilance of 2023. In the early 90s, Paglia was a cultural outlaw. Her major career-making work titled Sexual Personae was published in 1990 by the Yale University Press. Indeed, the writer actually champions masculinity, and implicit in her thesis is the essentialist notion that masculinity and femininity are age-old predetermined concepts. She explains this further by way of outlining the Apollonian masculine and controlled and Dionysian feminine and uncontrollable forces in the universe, laid bare in the stellar introductory chapter of sexual personae called Sex and Violence or Nature and Art. Paglia claims that she understands men and that due to nature and the way of the world, men must see themselves and operate in a very specific way. She, like Berger, purports that it is through acting, doing, that men construct their identities. In her essay, Rape and Modern Sex War, published by the New York Newsday on January 27, 1991, Paglia wrote, Women have menstruation to tell them they are women. Men must do or risk something to be men. Men become masculine only when other men say they are. Having sex with a woman is one way a boy becomes a man. And while having sex with a woman is certainly a ritualistic rite of passage for hegemonic masculine practices, so too is aggression. And as Paglia began to argue in the 90s, the sexual and aggressive forces are inextricably linked. In Rape and Modern Sex War, Paglia began by stating, Rape is an outrage that cannot be tolerated in civilized society. Yet feminism, which has waged a crusade for rape to be taken more seriously, has put young women in danger by hiding the truth about sex from them. In 1991, Paglia was advocating for what she coined cold reality, for common sense about life, and moreover for instilling within girls and boys a profound understanding of the aggressive nature of sex. Her essay was founded upon the simple premise that aggression and eroticism are deeply intertwined, and as such, women must not operate ignorant of the fact that such a primal force can sometimes get out of hand. Masculinity, Paglia wrote, is aggressive, unstable, combustible. It is also the most creative cultural force in history. Paglia's endorsement of a particularly conventional form of masculinity is a glowing one, chalking up its unpredictable aggression to part of what makes men interesting, attractive, and sexy. A young Nicole Brown certainly would have agreed back in 1997. After her first date with a football star, Brown reportedly came home with fresh rips in her jeans, telling her roommate, who advised her against seeing Simpson again, I really like him. Dating, raping, aggression, and masculinity were all very much a part of the conversation long before OJ was ever convicted of murder. However, these notions really began to be debated publicly in 1990, and whatever side you were on, it was established culturally that men were an issue that needed to be policed, dealt with, re-understood, and ultimately celebrated or punished. Nicole Brown's utterance post-first date with Simpson echoes an Ally McBeal episode explored in 1999 by Susan Bordeaux's The Male Body. 
In the episode titled Cro-Magnon, airing January 5th, 1998, lawyer Ali McBeal defends a young male client who slugged a guy in a bar for insulting his female date. Independent Ali, educated, civilized, undoubtedly feminist lawyer, steps up to the plate and argues for her brawny client. And quite convincingly, McBeal takes a personal stance, telling the jury, if anyone insulted her, she would want her date to rip his head off. A controversial perspective in a decade spearheading the public punishing of men for performances of social and sexual dominance and aggression. Ali instead celebrates her client's outburst, wholeheartedly endorsing it as the right thing to do in that particular situation. As a follow-up, her co-counsel recounts a moment in his life where he felt completely emasculated for not defending himself physically in an altercation with another man. Every man is part warrior, he tells the jury. Those primal qualities will always be there. He continues by narrating a separate altercation in which he physically took action, describing the punch he eventually threw as the most satisfying moment of his life. The sidebar storyline of the episode follows Ali on a date with a male companion described throughout the unfolding of the narrative as particularly alpha male and specifically well-endowed. The argument of the episode is that the primitive animal, if we're honest with ourselves, turns a girl on. Ultimately, Ali's admitted attraction to her date, as well as her sanction of her client's physical defense of his girlfriend at the bar, has little to do with chivalry and more to do with the magnetic appeal of uncivilized, untamed maleness. Nicole Brown may have been attracted to OJ's physicality for similar reasons, and maybe, dare I say, because of it. While this is a provocative question, culture in the 90s, while simultaneously condemning masculine aggression, was trying to negotiate why part of what makes women and men so attracted to men is how dangerous and unpredictable they can be. Culture is still trying to negotiate this issue today. One of the jokes that had audiences rolling with laughter from Louis C.K.'s 2013 special revolved entirely around a punchline with respect to how women can entertain going on dates with men at all when men themselves are women's leading cause of death by a landslide. The bit was literally called Men, the Number One Threat to Women. Ally McBeal's writers composed that entire episode in 1998 devoted to the acknowledgement of how sexy unbridled masculinity can be, regardless of era, rules, political correctness, and even regardless of the law. Certainly, part of the attraction to aggressive sexuality is the complex morality it represents, something dealt with in the aforementioned Ally McBeal episode. A man who cannot kill another man isn't celebrated for not killing. That's not interesting, intriguing, or admirable, because said man is physically useless and ineffectual, and so it is no surprise that he does not kill, for he cannot. But a man who can certainly kill another man, and chooses not to, well, this is when things get interesting, because this is when control is or isn't exercised. Part of the attraction to men being dangerous, full of consequence and so full of the ability to completely disregard consequence in an instant, is that they make a conscious choice to refrain from violence, despite possessing it, embodying it, and signifying it potentially. This attraction to that signification was still and is still a relevant phenomenon, and that anything can happen on the borderline quality is really something only men can perform and embody due to the potential power they wield physically. 
There is something about the defiance of societal rules that somehow makes a man more of one, an outlaw closer to animal. While it can be interpreted as succumbing to baser instincts, this primitivity implicit in male expression nevertheless fascinates us. There's something almost admirable about it. There's nothing more appealing or attractive, Ali McBeal was trying to suggest, than ultimate incarnations of the masculine, not caring, doing whatever one wants, whenever one wants to do it, and expressing oneself with brute masculine force just because one can. Of course, this admiration for such primitivity conflicts with a societal admonishing of it, but it is important to note that both of these were circulating at the time, and consequently this very paradox is responsible for the cultural anxiety generated around masculinity in the 90s. That Ali McBeal episode vindicates macho masculinity, and at the end of the episode, Ali McBeal is shown sleeping peacefully next to her uber-macho paramour, post-coitally knocked out. In 1991, infamous boxer Mike Tyson was charged with the rape of an 18-year-old girl. Desiree Washington claimed that Tyson, quote, raped her in his hotel room and laughed about it as she wept. While Tyson denied the charges in court in an attempt to cling to his freedom, the Mike Tyson story, as the New York Times wrote in 1992, has been more tragic than triumphant, with repeated episodes of aggressive sexual behavior towards women, including strangers he met in nightclubs or, in one widely publicized incident, a parking lot attendant. Knowledge of Tyson's trademark sexual aggression had been notorious prior to Washington's accusation of him. However, his rape trial showed the world that a beloved athlete could, and indeed would, fall from his pedestal for practicing aggression somewhere other than the boxing ring. Tyson's case was curious, too. On one hand, he was described as a gentle, shy humanitarian with a great love for children. On the other hand, he was a predator who abused women. People loved Tyson the way they loved OJ, and probably for many of the same reasons, but the polarities in his representation had yet to be negotiated, much like Simpson's cultural situation. The Tyson case was one in the first of many successful date rape prosecutions that persisted throughout the 90s to now, and Judge Patricia J. Gifford's simple statement rang true throughout the nation as the famous boxer was put behind bars. She said, Rape is rape. Tyson was only one, however, in a long list of athletes accused of domestic and sexual abuse. This is a trend that has persisted into present day, with surveillance-era technology making allegations and incidents of abusive nature all the more accessible and prevalent, captured from cameras perched inside an elevator to those conveniently located on the backside of someone's cell phone. The list of athletes who have engaged in abusive, aggressive, physical, or sexual behavior with their wives, girlfriends, or casual sex partners runs longer than this chapter will have room to investigate. Something to keep in mind, however, is that each new instance of an athlete's barbaric behavior plays into his star text, and as a result of the cultural zeitgeist, it references Simpsons in a subtle but nonetheless remarkable way. Notable instances of aggressive behavior have been cherry-picked to illustrate the aforementioned trend, beginning with Simpsons' murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman in the year 1994. In March 2009, Rams running back Steven Jackson beat his then-girlfriend Supriya Harris until she was bleeding heavily. Huffington Post provides a chilling description of events in which Jackson's little nephew, witness to the assault, interceded and yelled, Uncle, she has a baby, stop. 
Harris was nine months pregnant with their child during the altercation. Despite Jackson's denial of the assault, the story circulated quite a bit, gaining real traction in the press, so much so that Rams coach Steve Spagnuolo had to get involved, releasing a statement assuring the public that the team was doing their due diligence on the matter. While charges against Jackson were eventually dropped, the incident yet again pushed the narrative that domestic abuse and athletic stars go hand in hand. In a widely publicized occurrence during the month of February 2014, football star and running back Ray Rice was caught on tape dragging a very limp and unconscious Janae Palmer, Rice's then-fiancé, out of an elevator at an Atlantic City casino. TMZ obtained and ran the footage on their affiliate website TMZ Sports with a headline that read in big bold letters, Ray Rice dragging unconscious fiancé after alleged mutual attack. It should be noted, too, that Rice and Palmer were in fact married a short month and a half after the assault occurred. Between the years of 2008 and 2016, football stars Nelson Aguilar, Julian Edelman, Jalen Mills, Jordan Hicks, and James Harrison were all involved in publicized cases of abuse allegations, ranging from rape to battery and assault. In all five cases, the victims were women. Nevertheless, all five of these athletes played in the 2018 Super Bowl. In a 2015 article for Bustle, reporter Lauren Holter wrote, After receiving a great deal of criticism for light suspensions of athletes charged with domestic abuse, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell created new rules for players who abuse a partner, saying the first offense would lead to a six-game suspension without pay, and a second offense would lead to being kicked out of the league for at least a year. The mere fact that the NFL had to create a set of rules and procedures anticipating the inevitability of acts of domestic aggression suggests that there is undoubtedly a significant movement of violent behavior at home within the athletic community. And in 2023, this can be considered a significant part of the zeitgeist. After all, who hasn't seen the chilling footage of Ray Rice oh so calmly dragging his unconscious fiancé out of that elevator? The eeriness of the footage is positively dreadful, and the availability of it makes incidents like these very, very public knowledge. As a result of these highly publicized examples of athletes and aggressive behavior, the 90s saw a wave of works published whose specific intent was to investigate this trend. Among these include Stanley Teitelbaum's work, Sports Heroes, Fallen Idols, providing an accurate title to the cultural pattern of athletic icons falling from grace. The publishing of this book in 2005, and then of his follow-up work, Athletes Who Indulge Their Dark Side in 2010, speaks volumes about the disillusionment many faced watching the rise and fall of their athletic heroes. The worship of the athlete is made clear by Teitelbaum in his work as is the necessity for these heroes, particularly for men to look up to. Teitelbaum explains, contemporary men are desperately searching for heroes in their lives. We're wanting for role models at a time when the ranks of positive male role models are fairly thin. So many athletes deserving of our loyalty have been glorified by the press and glorified by Madison Avenue. Men search for an identification with a winner, a male figure who is effective, virile, and capable, one who knows how to get things done. Having a sports hero meets a need. The language Teitelbaum uses is unsurprisingly reminiscent of the language used describing masculinity by Connell, Paglia, Berger, Bordeaux, and Faludi. Men are acting agents, effective and capable, in order to be conceived of as worthy of the title with a capital M. 
of course, that capability and efficacy can be exerted in different areas. Providing for your family. Yes, that's positive. But if one follows the logic, according to Teitelbaum and culture's definition of masculinity, a man who can effectively beat or kill the mother of his kids is still a man. For according to hegemony and culture, manliness hinges on efficacy and control. It doesn't matter what he does, so long as he does it well. This is the crux of the problem of culture's conception of men, and this is also part of why athletes continue to be revered even after their aggressive domestic acts. They continue to be effective, on the field and off. We often see our sports heroes as supermen, Teitelbaum wrote, and many of them ultimately reveal wings made of wax as their talents wane and they fumble and tumble from the heights where we have placed them. The debate will surely persist about athletes in particular being potent and dangerous, but Susan Bordeaux in The Male Body hit the nail on the head in 1999. She wrote, Could it be that our culture has a small problem knowing what it wants from men? Think of the instruction in raw aggression that football provides and how it encourages the player to think of his body as a fierce, unstoppable force of nature. Think of how this aggression is rewarded with scholarships, community adulation, romantic attention. Now imagine the young quarterback at a workshop on date rape, held by the counseling center of that same high school which is encouraging him to be an animal on the football field. At that workshop, he's told he must learn that he is not an animal, that his body is not an unstoppable force, that it must yield, in fact, to one little word. Now, which is this young man supposed to be? An animal? or a gentleman. All the things that men should be, according to culture, combine, culminating in irreconcilable mixed messages. Of course, Bordeaux's example is sensationalized. It shouldn't be a stretch for young men to comprehend the simple fact that they cannot and should not operate in their sexual or romantic relationships the way they do on the football field. This theory seems to have issues being put into practice by these young men. Paglia would certainly chime in here, reminding us that the sexual and aggressive forces are linked. Regardless, moving forward and making progress begins with an acknowledgement of the failures of putting the aforementioned simple concept into play physically, and the 90s was an era in which culture at large was beginning to acknowledge that men, especially contact sport athletes, had a problem doing just that. Masculinity on trial, however, was not and is not limited to athletes. In the past five years especially, we as a culture have seen iconic men fall, with the brutal details of their alleged and proven behavior broadcasted for all to contemplate. The first of these examples is Bill Cosby, who today has been accused by 51 women in total and is serving a lengthy prison sentence for his assault on one of them. Allegations against Cosby range from drugged rapes, which according to the testimonials was his hallmark, to sexual acts committed without the consent of women. Dave Chappelle in his Netflix special The Age of Spin describes the devastating reaction felt by people, and black men in particular, when these allegations began to be brought to light. Cosby was a significant paternalistic figure to many, but to black America particularly. For African Americans, the decline of Bill Cosby's public image was nothing short of devastating. As Chappelle explains, he was a hero to black men. The comedian explains Cosby's incredible history in the following excerpt. What the fuck is wrong with What does she think? Does she think that I don't know that rape is wrong? 
Does she think that maybe I don't have empathy for Bill Cosby's alleged victims? And I would be remiss if I didn't remind you that technically these are all still allegations. Although I admit, it looks very bad. <laughs> but perhaps if she looked at it correctly, she would have empathy for me, the man she was attacking. 42-year-old black comedian, obviously, Bill Cosby was a hero to me. And she doesn't know what it feels like to think that your hero might have done something so heinous. My God, you can't imagine. It'd be as if you heard that chocolate ice cream itself had raped 54 people. Let's not forget, let's not forget, I've never met Bill Cosby, so I'm not defending him. But let's just remember that he has a valuable legacy that I can't just throw away. I remember that he's the first black man to ever win an Emmy in television. I also remember that he's the first guy to make a cartoon with black characters where their lips and noses were drawn proportionally. <laughs> I remember that he had a television show that got numbers equivalent to the Super Bowl every Thursday night. And I remember that he partnered up with a clinical psychologist to make sure that there was not one negative image of African-Americans on his show. I'm telling you, this is no small thing. I've had a television show. I wouldn't have done that shit. <laughs> Gave tens of millions of dollars to African-American institutions of higher learning, and is directly responsible for thousands of black kids going to college, not just the ones he raped. Here comes the kicker, you ready? Here's the fact that I heard but haven't confirmed. I heard that when Martin Luther King stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and said he had a dream, he was speaking into a PA system that Bill Cosby paid for. Do you understand what I'm saying? The point is this, he rapes, but he saves. And he saves more than he rapes, but he probably does rape. Herein lie a handful of dichotomies not unlike those Simpson embodies, completely aligned with the preoccupations of the crisis of masculinity, evidently a major cultural player to this day. Rich Juzwiak, in his analysis of Chappelle's endorsement of Cosby, puts it simply, more than one thing can be true at the same time. And while that may be a valid observation, anxieties about men and their multiplicities have remained, without closure as far as what men are supposed to do and be. Bill Cosby was a figurehead to men and women. An accusation after allegation had Cosby tumbling down, completely overturning people's worldviews and discrediting the idol they once revered as a man, capital M. On April 27, 2018, finally, Eric Deggins of NPR wrote, we no longer have to use the word allegedly. Cosby was convicted of three of his 51 charges and will surely be dying in prison for his wrongdoings. NPR titled the article, Bill Cosby's Conviction Marks a New Chapter for Me Too, referencing the contemporary worldwide movement that had women hashtagging Me Too in an effort to display solidarity against sexual harassment and assault. Almost every hashtag signified a woman coming out publicly as a victim of sexual assault at some point in their life. The results of the movement were, in short, both revealing and astounding, including everyone from laywomen to celebrities and public personalities sharing incredibly personal and often painful stories. 
Another significant instance of cultural upheaval can be found in the case of Harvey Weinstein, notorious Hollywood big shot and founder of Miramax Pictures, among other cinematic ventures. This was a name on the lips of almost every actor and actress who ever won an Oscar between the years of 1988 and 2017, expressing gratitude to him as a major player in Hollywood, and the exposure of him as a sexual harasser took many by surprise. What it did demonstrate, though, is that men keep falling. It's practically a movement. On November 29, 2017, somber-faced morning TV superstars Kathy Lee and Hoda announced the dismissal of their iconic co-host Matt Lauer, a much-beloved news anchor who had been accused of inappropriate sexual conduct in the workplace, backed up with evidence that this was a reoccurring behavior for Lauer. The women call Lauer their dear, dear friend and articulate the difficulties they're facing trying to assimilate the notion of Lauer, friendly, respectful, beloved, and professional with these new events revealing him to also be and embody the polar opposite of their understanding and experience of him. The women expressed their difficulty in reconciling what he did to his victims with who he was to them in their lives. Many high-profile men have now had charges brought against them, and to the cultural sleuth and analyst, this indicates a distinct pattern that must not go ignored. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's testimony against Brett Kavanaugh was another step forward for the Me Too movement, with Kavanaugh portrayed as outlandish and villainous by news outlets, a recurring photo of him grimacing angrily gracing the tabloids everywhere. Kavanaugh's angry and unbelievable defense was iconic in that its formatting was reminiscent even of Clinton's televised confession to America. A decade later and men are still being tried. The crisis in masculinity can be seen by way of this exactly, men's continuous fall. The crisis in masculinity of the 1990s provided a context for the OJ trial. Another crucial aspect included racial conflict. Masculinity and race intersect significantly in the case of OJ Simpson, for as a celebrity, Simpson first transcended race, and then as a defendant, he embodied it. This was due to many forces at work, namely the archaic stereotyping of the black man in particular as criminal and dangerous. This stereotype was used by Simpson's defense team to his advantage as they called upon the jury and America to sympathize with Simpson. But OJ as defendant also embodied celebrity. Exceptions were made for him that would have been made for no other person in America, and that many argue would certainly not have been made for the African-American laywoman or man in the 90s. The Bronco chase is a perfect example. Simpson was pursued so slowly by the LAPD that footage of the event looked more like a presidential police motorcade than an actual chase. Teitelbaum, in his work, explains this too, stating, We hate being disillusioned by our fallen idols. An extreme example was the Ford Bronco chase when spectators lined the Los Angeles freeway and cheered, O.J. Simpson on, even though he was a fugitive. This is often chalked up to how uniformly beloved Simpson was as a public figure. Ezra Edelman's Oscar-winning documentary, O.J. Made in America, described Simpson as the counter-revolutionary athlete. White America was looking for somebody who can erase the threat of these seemingly angry principled black athletes. O.J. made people feel good, end quote. Somehow, Simpson managed to make the public feel a kinship of sorts with him before the murders, regardless of race. O.J. was extraordinary, but he was also, quote, just like us. 
The fascination stems from his ordinariness, his friendliness, just as much as it stems from his extraordinariness. Anxiety always lies in the paradox. An interviewee of Edelman's described Simpson's ascendance as such, quote, he transcended race and color to the exalted status of celebrity. O.J. was, prior to 1994, an icon of greatness, and yet he was also relatable. Everybody wanted to hang out with the juice. Everyone wanted him to be their friend because there was a familiarity to him, an affable quality, an X factor or charisma that just drew people in. Edelman's documentary phrases it as such, describing Simpson's disposition as a young man, as based on being a pleasing person to white people. He was enormously self-conscious of who he was and who he needed to be. There was this character, O.J., that he was creating. One of the most striking parts of the Edelman documentary is the way the filmmaker covers the infamous Bronco chase. The number of people who ran out to watch O.J.'s white Bronco and cheer him on was overwhelming. Why did they gather to watch Simpson flee from crime, from punishment, from rules, from regulation, from society itself? L.A. natives carried signs saying, guilty or not, we love you, O.J. Guilty or not. People loved O.J. for transcending race, and yet people remained fascinated with him in part because of his ultimate failure of that transcendence. Simpson did not prove cultural constructs wrong, the ones concocted and created defining black men as dangerous. He did not maintain his uniformly beloved status and his safe embodiment of exceptional success. Instead, by way of the murders, Simpson acted in accordance with the worst of the racial and masculine stereotypes circulating in culture that the 90s were trying to wash away. Howard Stern's prominence in the year 1992 onwards contributes notably to what was circulating in American culture during that decade. One of the most provocative features of his radio show is his courageous and dangerous ability to cover any and all topics with both comedy and brutal honesty. For this, he became the king of morning radio and absolutely dominated airwaves in the 90s. His show was a place people would go to get their current events and more than that, to hear about his and his staff's fearless opinions on what was happening in the zeitgeist. His coverage of the OJ trial is absolute gold. The shock jock devoted hours upon hours up to entire shows discussing the multifaceted elements involved in this cultural happening. Within the many hours of OJ discussions, Stern and his colleague Robin Quivers shared their personal perspectives, employing humor to drive their points home. At one point, Stern said, OJ was the kind of black guy that even white racists felt comfortable around. And he asked his audience, how do you identify a villain in this story? Is the villain OJ? Society? Is the villain the high school football coach who coached OJ? Stern's banter is reminiscent of many of the questions posed within this very thesis, and makes evident the fact that discussions like these were very much in circulation in the mid-90s about men, race, and who was ultimately to blame for all the tension. People were conscious of the contradictory elements of Simpson's curious case even then, especially when it came to race and how Simpson was perceived by the public. These small snippets from Howard Stern's morning radio show can be taken as something of a window into the attitudes and practices in the U.S. at the time of the trial. Stern was very clear on one thing throughout the entirety of his discussions. He said, O.J. is being treated like he is, a rich man. 
This was something agreed upon by everyone in that radio room. And yet Simpson's acquittal can be explained paradoxically by his embodiment of blackness just as much as it can be explained by his powerful celebrity. Nicole and OJ's relationship is significant in that they were also, before their domestic disputes became public knowledge, a symbol of interracial progress. As a mixed-race couple, they were fairly progressive for their time and were both celebrated and scrutinized by the media and by America at large. While their couplehood may have been the topic of debate behind closed doors in more antiquated households, Nicole and OJ were nonetheless a fixture in both the tabloids and the sports world. Together, they symbolized more than one union. They were the image of the future, a more reformist, modern, and tolerant future. They were the picture-perfect Brentwood couple for whom race didn't matter in the slightest. Simpson's actions and murderous behavior threatened that union and reintroduced, potentially revalidating for those who are believers, the constructed imperialist notion of the black man as savage, uncontrollable, and in need of containment. And so, with a nod to McClintock, the media began a process of colonization, using all of its abilities, technologies, and resources to find out absolutely everything on OJ, and broadcast it for the world in an attempt to regain control of his out-of-bounds body. Photos of Nicole's body post-mortem reaffirmed the deepest, darkest, most secretly feared notions circulating about African-American men as barbaric, savage, uncivilized, and dangerous. These ideas are archaic, age-old, and have been in play since a human being had the faculties to conceive of the conceptual other as a potential threat. Notions about savagery, barbarism, and primitivity related to the African-American male have been in circulation since the 1800s. While society has inarguably progressed, these concepts still echo in the cultural consciousness, and when photos of the slain Ron and Nicole showed up in the paper, said concepts were triggered, activated, hurtling full throttle into the forefront of the zeitgeist once again. Today, the perspective on interracial couplehood is very different, and while tolerance is practiced, attitudes of intolerance towards interracial romance exist and circulate because of these aforementioned antiquated notions. Intolerance is fueled by these old concepts embedded in culture, and each new instance of an African-American male acting in accordance with these constructed notions somehow validates said constructed concepts in the minds of those who ascribe to them. This, of course, is the problem, and is why said constructed and outdated notions still exist today. All it takes is one time, one instance, one cultural trauma to dig up, uncover, and represent old notions society has attempted to put to bed in the name of progress. The year 1996 was a major year for scandal, particularly in terms of scrutinizing masculinity in the public sphere. This year, and those following it, saw not only O.J. fall from grace, but the President of the United States as well. Bill Clinton was beloved by much of the American public, but in 1998, allegations of his affair with Monica Lewinsky rattled his reputation. The commander-in-chief was accused of having sexual relations with a 22-year-old Beverly Hills native, the White House intern with whom he ultimately admitted to canoodling, despite his marriage to Hillary Clinton. Bill and Hillary were wed in 1975 and are still together to date. In 1999, Susan Bordeaux wrote of the scandal, I wonder if Bill Clinton would have been treated in the press 
like such a voracious, infantile little boy if his sins with Lewinsky had been of the more active, manly variety. I can't help but think that the passivity of his illicit affair, the fact that she was pleasuring him, fed into disdain for him. Of course, Clinton was also in the power position, having a young intern at his beck and call. The paradoxes here are significant as well, but what Bordeaux astutely considers is the danger around the presidential body with respect to, in Clinton's case, its social and emotional penetrability, its vulnerability, its susceptibility to succumbing to temptation. These are all high-stakes situations in the conceptual realm, for if the presidential body is both a national body and a male body, then Clinton's actions have conceptual consequences for culture and men. We saw this yet again as Hillary and Donald went toe-to-toe in what was the incredibly surprising presidential race of 2016. Our fascination with and requirement to get closer to and understand bodies is still significant today, in an era where arguments against candidate Hillary Clinton include things like Trump's assertion that she did not possess the, quote, stamina to be president. This quote in particular circulated on Twitter the night of the debate, as well as for weeks to come with memes and jokes attached, and not for nothing. Trump in many ways hit the nail on the head. With just one little word and the history carried with it, Trump and presumably his speechwriters triggered something in the cultural consciousness, pointing to Hillary's lack of masculinity. Her body is not hard. Instead, it is soft, feminine, mysterious, unknowable, its boundaries uncontrollable. And so the implication is, if she cannot control herself, how will she be able to control the country, the world? These are the deep, subconscious, implicit questions that are activated when Trump references stamina in his presidential rebuttal, not so subtly suggesting it as a requirement for presidential candidacy. If the presidential body is a stand-in for the country itself, then it must have strong borders and strict control. It must be self-policing, rigid, utilitarian, reminiscent of George Bush on a jog, Obama on the basketball court, or JFK commandeering a sailboat, yet another superstar of his environment. The presidential body must be a force to be reckoned with, for this is how America needs to see itself. Trump's argument was clear. Hillary was not up to the job and would never be up to the job simply by virtue of her femininity, specifically her feminine body, and what it connotes. This recalls Butler's theories on performance and gender. Bodies matter. Reading bodies matters. As unfair as it may be and as outdated as it may seem, acquiring knowledge this way is still one of our predominant modes of understanding even today in 2023. The tangible consequences those readings have for real people in the real world are real, and often men are held to a very particular set of standards as far as gender performance goes. In 1996, Camille Paglia was featured on Politically Incorrect with Bill Maher, a provocative 90s show that had America tuning in to hear popular personalities talk about taboo subjects. Maher opens the episode by telling a joke about Playboy's Playmate of the Year, Tracy Adele, who apparently, he says, quote, had a conversation with OJ the day he killed his wife, I mean, allegedly, and I think she's a good match for him because she listed, among her turn-ons, 
a man who's not afraid to show his emotions, end quote. Again, we find in the discourse this idea of the unbounded. Emotions are supposed to be controlled and contained if you're a man who is powerful and in command of himself and others. There is an implied leakiness, an unboundedness of emotions or inner states. This is also something that people often said of Bill Clinton, who was known to cry in public as well as overeat. Many articles were published on his love of fast food and his inability to control his appetite, nutritional as well as sexual as it turns out. Negotiations and renegotiations of masculinity run rampant in the 90s. These were things, behaviors, and attitudes that people were getting extremely preoccupied with. Outlets published news stories about Clinton's susceptibility to getting emotional, crying, and about overeating habits, and not for nothing. The collective cultural consciousness was trying to incorporate all of these behaviors into its concept of American masculinity, judging whether the president was performing successfully with respect to what it means to be a man. That night in 96, Paglia told Marr and his entire televised audience, quote, There is such a thing as masculinity and femininity. She argued that these concepts do in fact exist within the realm of the real. They're not just constructs. And while they are and can be sex roles, there's also an essential truth or a gendered energetic essence underlying their conceptuality. She says, there is something that is lust. There is something that is barbaric behavior. She reinforced that barbarism and primitive energy are real and emphasized that these energies circulate within the psyche of a man. Most women cannot understand what is going on in the primitive mind of men, Paglia said. Things like extreme criminal behavior, rape, murder, and so on. Condoning these acts by recognizing the energies and drives fueling them is not the goal of this thesis, nor is it Camille Paglia's goal, though people often get confused due to her very vocal championing and endorsement of masculine energy. Rather, the hope is that by acknowledging that these conflicting and sometimes dark drives exist— constantly stifled by societal structures and personal policing of an individual's own exertion of control, more room will be made for reworkings, reimaginings, and reincarnations of what masculinity can mean today. Paglia told Marr, quote, We do not want castrated men. This is a bold statement. What she points to, of course, is not the physical castration, but rather the conceptual, psychological castration that goes on when men become feminized. In other words, when they stop being these powerful entities wielding control over themselves and their environment. If a man can no longer do something to you or for you, as John Berger would also argue, he consequently becomes conceptually castrated, and his manhood as understood by himself and society at large goes right out the window. In Paglia's discourse about the aforementioned issues surrounding masculinity, it's almost as though she's attempting to call upon a kind of respect for, as well as a wariness and awareness of, the primitive energies and aggressive capabilities that men have. This echoes her written work. She encourages women to acknowledge 
that male aggression is a very real part of our reality, still present even in contemporary politically correct society. As a provocateur, this dangerous side to men was something that Paglia was actually encouraging in her work. And in her celebratory statements about lust, aggression, rock music, and so on, she cites this impulsive, dangerous, creative, and destructive force as one that actually propels society forward, generating feats of civilization from great art to skyscrapers. By and large, Paglia wants women and the Western world to acknowledge the fact that these dangerous drives are very real for men, and that men grapple with their polarities, for they, according to Paglia, essentially possess specificities in energy and expression, as well as gender-specific performative requirements that women simply don't. Paglia's comments all point to her trying to showcase that masculinity is very much a reality for men, regardless of the ivory tower debates about whether it's a constructed concept versus an essentialist expression. Paglia says masculinity, its demands, and its requirements feel real. Actions are taken in the real world because of it, and ultimately this is what the everyday individual must negotiate. Conclusively for Paglia, male impulse, aggression, and danger are realities, and ignoring or condemning men for them may only lead to more chaos and destruction. There should have been great specials about OJ's prowess on the football field for people to understand, Paglia said to Mar, to see why people loved OJ so much. Paglia was trying to convey that these hypothetical specials would demonstrate to the public Simpson's incredible ability to control, influence, and dominate everything in his environment. This element of his celebrity and athleticism, dominion over all, even over powerful men, and sometimes seemingly over physics itself. This was Simpson's reality. The aforementioned is something beloved by and very familiar to Americans, for it runs as a current— a theme through the vein of American culture as far as its conception of masculinity is concerned. Print ads of the Marlboro Man, an American emblem of masculinity, depict and naturalize this exact notion, showing the icon stalking the American countryside, a whipper lasso in one hand, a horse in the other, with nothing but mountains and fields of green grass as far as the eye can see. While the Marlboro Man was retired from print in 1999, his image and archetype is recalled in the American consciousness again and again as an icon of hard, gruff American masculinity. In billboards and print ads, the Marlboro Man sits atop the hierarchical pyramid. Like God himself, he is in complete control and at ease, comfortable with his dominion over everything. The dominion part is what's important for our purposes here. Yet again, this notion of control is integral to the Marlboro Man and to the American man's successful masculinity. He owns it all, from the land to the beasts and beyond, simply by virtue of being a man and performing masculinity in its ideal incarnation, with dirty hands, his rough demeanor, his stoic grimace, his macho utilitarian body, and the implicit hard physical work that they connote. 
One look at O.J. on the football field, Paglia argued, and you'll quickly understand his extraordinariness, and furthermore, why it's not such a leap from there to his extraordinary murderous actions. Both the Marlboro Man and Simpson are superstars of their environment, and this notion is something internalized by O.J., by men, and by culture as successful masculinity. If O.J. wanted something on the field, he took it. He chased it and hit for it and ran farther and longer than almost every other player for it. And to him and to America, that meant everything. Try telling that guy no. Integral to Paglia's crusade regarding the sex war was resolution. Paglia told Mark, quote, It's the 90s. We can say the time for hostility towards men in feminism is over. It's time to reconcile, to find common ground. 21st century feminism has to let men find their own voices. It's up to men to find themselves. And while it may be up to them to do so, it seems as though they are struggling more now than ever to reconcile the polarizing archetypes, desires, urges, and drives they find themselves wrestling with. In order to better understand extreme criminal and aggressive masculine behavior, Paglia's argument is that we must acknowledge that these impulses exist within us all, and furthermore, that they still exist unreconciled in the contemporary postmodern man. These have yet to be dealt with culturally, have yet to be integrated and understood properly, and so stand-up comedy comes in with attempts to negotiate the undercurrents, the taboo, and the leftover. Of course, the real trials were carried out between the years of 1994 and 1996, culminating in a verdict of not criminally guilty and civilly guilty. The criminal trial was publicly televised and was, as a family member of mine put it recently, the first ever reality television show. Another reality television show whose genesis begins with OJ is Keeping Up with the Kardashians. The show and its many spin-offs follows the Kardashian clan as they live and grow in the wake of Robert Kardashian's death. Kardashian was a good friend of OJ's. The two attended college together and stayed friends until the final months of the trial. Kardashian's daughters are arguably some of the most famous people in the world to date. However, in the telling of their story, one must start with OJ Simpson, for the girl's connection to OJ is what makes them not beautiful or fashionable, but culturally relevant. This was and continues to be their currency. In a recent interview with Kim and Khloe Kardashian, Howard Stern begins in exactly this place, asking them questions about their father, the trial, and Uncle OJ. Simpson's presence in their life is, without a doubt, the genesis of their empire. He validates their presence on the pop culture landscape and is the seed that sprouted everything that they and Kris Jenner have created. Simpson renders the Kardashian clan interesting and, most importantly, culturally pertinent. The OJ trial is still a major part of the zeitgeist, and many a television show has involved the cultural currency of Simpson in their plotline, sometimes devoting entire episodes to the cultural icon. Seinfeld, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and The People vs. O.J. Simpson are a few among many who detail, utilize, and parody the Simpson narrative. 
What is notable about these shows is that they were broadcast and created from 1996 to now. These televised pop culture examples draw sometimes very explicitly from the real-world OJ trial, and perhaps what's more significant is that they cite the memory of it more than anything else. The criminal trial is recalled in the American collective memory and consciousness as a massive failure on the part of the American justice system. This is parodied to the nth degree by Kimmy Schmidt in particular, with its clownishly ineffectual prosecution team. The real Marsha Clark explained it best in a 2016 interview with Vulture.com during the People vs. O.J. Simpson's moment in the spotlight. She said, The real trial was one bad ruling after another, one ridiculous, bizarro moment after another. It was the most devastating, constantly maddening, traumatizing experience of my life. I would argue of America's modern cultural life as well. Quiet questions about the trial are clearly still in circulation today, left open-ended and infuriatingly unanswered. How could someone so completely, so obviously, so undeniably guilty be found innocent? Was it his celebrity, his charisma, his X-factor quality that won the jury over? Was it his athleticism, his defense team, the prosecution? Was it their fault? Or could the LAPD and racial tensions in the U.S. be to blame for such a gross legal mishap? Maybe it's just as simple as the juice being above the law, slip-sliding his way out of the grips of America's judicial system, an exception to the rule just like he had been on the football field. The answer, of course, is that it was everything all at once, a perfect storm brewing and then culminating in the trial itself, and, as is human nature, our inability to pinpoint a concrete, singular explanation only makes us yearn for one more. The fruits of this need for closure continue to sprout and grow, generating series, shows, specials, news stories, tweets, memes, and stand-up jokes. As the jokes unfold over time, it's crucial to keep in mind that history runs like a current throughout comedy about Simpson and men. Years later, in 2023, OJ jokes persist, and the sensitivity and anxiety linger surrounding the issue of who he and who men may potentially be. Thank you so much for listening to this next chapter in my master's thesis, Exploring the Crisis of Masculinity from the 90s to Now, the next chapter coming up is going to be more of an investigation into stand-up jokes and stand-up material and humor circulating about men 